today we have the incredible opportunity to hear from uh, some folks who have been a part of our church for uh, a little while and uh, continue our journey in the way of love, so I'm very excited for that. Uh, Brian and Allison Mall have been around the, 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 the church and the faith story and journeys, planted a church, led um, in worship and in teaching and leadership, and it's our complete and total honor to have them sharing with us today about how to have a perfect marriage with zero flaws. <laughs> so hopefully you are ready to take a copious amounts of notes for your future if you're not married yet, and uh, I look forward to having them uh, join us and share with us in a few minutes. But before that, our teaching text, so Lexi's going to come and read some Awesome dream. 
the richer and the poor, and the sickness and in health, I am with you until the day I die. And so the dream in our head is of these two people starting this fascinating adventurous journey um, where we have incredible, <laughs> right, right? He does have curly hair, so it's kind of weird. Um, we, we have incredible well-paid jobs, and we have the most beautiful, perfect, healthy children, and we travel, and all while maintaining our own perfect bodies. <laughs> And remember, I know that this is a high school during the week, but right now it is the house of the Lord. It is a sanctuary of God's love. So you have to be honest, okay? I wrote these questions down. If you're married, is there anything about your spouse that drives you absolutely crazy? Two things, two things. Babe, I'll give you a few minutes to think about it. Is there anything that you just wish you would stop doing with your love of God? Anything you wish you would finally start doing? If you ever wondered if being in love is this much work, maybe I'm not in love. Or have you ever thought, this is not the life I had in mind when I got married? It seems like marriage is much more of an uphill struggle.
within those 10 years, but they were never good enough, and the bad ones were all her doing. I realized that I needed someone else. Have you all ever heard of uh, the story in Genesis about Rachel and Leah? Anybody ever read that story? Or if we haven't read that story, we know sort of where it begins. It begins with uh, Abraham. God goes to Abraham, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, we're going to bless the entire world. This is sort of the beginning to the Israelite nation. So Abraham has two sons. One of them is named Isaac. Isaac has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob deceives Esau and his father, and then flees the country out of fear, and finds respite at his uncle Laban's house. Are we tracking? While at his uncle Laban's house, he falls in love with a woman named Rachel. <clears throat> Let's look at the text. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Would any of you work for your potential future father-in-law for seven years just to earn this woman that you've fallen in love with? I don't know. I don't know. But he does it. But for those of us who have read this story before, we know that's not the end of the story, right? So he serves for seven years. It comes to the wedding night. There's laughing and celebrating and wine. And then Jacob goes to lay down with Rachel, and Laban slips in Leah. <laughs> and Jacob wakes up the next day, and he's like, what just happened? And now Jacob is actually married to Leah, and Laban says, well, she is the older one. I need to marry her off first. But if you'll work for me for another seven years, then you can have Rachel too. And because Jacob loved Rachel so much, he says, deal. So after 14 years, Jacob now has two wives. Rachel, the one he wants, and Leah, the one he had to take. Right now, some ushers are going to uh, help me by passing out uh, an article to you, a piece of paper to you. So ushers, stand up and start passing this paper out. And while they're passing out this article that's been very transformative and insightful for us, it's by Craig Barnes, who's the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. I need to tell you two things about this article before we read through it together, okay? First of all, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. Maybe this is the first time you've heard that, but throughout Scripture, we hear that the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus and the church are married. We're on mission together, right? And then secondly, what you need to know about this article is it is mostly about Jesus and the church. But for today's purposes, it is about marriage. So if you have a pen and you want to underline things that stick out to you, or if you just have a great memory and you're like, okay, that one. Because I'm going to ask you a question about it in just a minute. But... Now that it looks like everyone has one or close to having one, uh, let's read through this together. Okay. I think people are still getting some, but I can go ahead and start with that. 
Christ and Jesus is married to both Rachel and Leah, to the church he wants and to the church he has to take. Rachel is the wife he loves and thought he was getting, but he can't have her without taking Leah, whom he doesn't love and didn't think he was married. This metaphor from Jacob's two wives in the Old Testament has obvious limitations for the contemporary context. But it can't be dismissed just because we're offended by the notion of two wives. Metaphorically speaking, every married person has two spouses. There's the person you thought you were marrying and the stranger who came with that person. It's a great description of how Jesus receives the church. Paul was pretty clear about what Jesus expects of his bride. He's looking for a church that will keep doing whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, and whatever is commendable. There are times when this is exactly what the church does. Every time the church throws itself into binding the wounds of the poor, taking risky steps towards justice, and proclaiming the grace of God, Jesus smiles, like an old lover who remembers being smitten by the spouse of his dreams. There are also times when the church disappoints Jesus, when we flirt with those in power and wealth, or turn in on ourselves with hurts and accusations. There's no need to list the familiar and manifold sins of the church. Every time I sit next to someone on an airplane who, after discovering my vocation, wants to tell me about the problems of the church, I always respond by saying, trust me, you don't know the half of it. After he spent three years with his disciples, I think Jesus was clear about the vulnerabilities of his plan for the salvation of the world through the church. Being disappointed is hardly new to Jesus. Spouses are always disappointed at some point in each other. This is just another reason why serious relationships live out of commitment and vows. But there are other times when the church doesn't disappoint Jesus by its sins as much as it confuses him by its preoccupations. As the story goes, there wasn't anything wrong with Leah. She just wasn't the wife Jacob expected. The Leah church today is the one preoccupied with paying the bills rather than being passionately in love with its neighbor. And with a heartbreaking injustice erupts in society, the church is quick to set up a task force, hire consultants to research the problem, <coughs> survey opinions about it, and write a position paper that can be filed away for safekeeping. Like someone who unwraps a horribly knitted sweater on Christmas morning, Jesus responds by saying to the church, Oh, wow. I can't imagine how much time you put into it. It is striking that by the end of the Jacob marriage, Jacob appears to have embraced Leah. When Rachel died, the family was in transit, so Jacob bought a piece of property by the side of the road, buried her there, and kept moving. But when Leah died, he had her buried in the family pot, Plot where he would eventually have his own lonely place. Maybe this means that he had come to embrace the spouse he was given more than the one he wanted and had to leave behind. Jesus doesn't love the church as a dream, just love the church as a dream. He also loves the church he gets, which is not so dreamy. His vow to the church, sealed on the cross, proclaimed that God was dying to love us as we are. If this means nothing else, it means we need to love the church we have, not the church we wish we had. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned in his book, Life Together, nothing is more dangerous to authentic community than our dream for it. 
we will always prefer our ideal to the reality that God has given us. The challenge for the church today is to look for the mystery and the miracle in old ways. Only then will we be attracted to a culture looking for a savior. People will always be drawn to any church that has received enough sacred love to offer it to others. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. I can say that because I didn't write it. Okay. Uh, so let's hear from a couple of them. What what sticks out to you? Just raise your hand and I'll point. Anybody? What sticks out to you? If you don't raise your hand, I'll call on you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Anything? What sticks out? Church is flawed like a relationship, any relationship, right? What else? What, sti- what else sticks out? You guys all said it was good. What sticks out? Love who you have, not who you want. One more over here. Happy to be happy to be together, um, which 
trying to send his knowledge and opinions. So, um, as you heard Brian say, he blamed me for the for the state of our marriage, for the bad marriage, for all the things that were going wrong. But I was doing the same thing. I was blaming him for everything, the bad marriage, but everything else. I was blaming him for um, my lifelong issues with self-image and worth and weight that I had blamed God for, I blamed my mom for, but now I could blame Brian for that and everything else that went wrong with me that I didn't get that I was Brian's fault. And I blame my kids, I blame, still blame God, I blame anyone and everyone but myself. Um, which, as you can imagine, I mean, what does that do? Nothing. It changes nothing. Um, it, I wasn't happy, it wasn't like I was walking around blaming him for everything, but joyfully. Um, so, Eventually, and as hard as it was, I discovered that I had to change me. The only person that I could change, the only mind I could change, the only heart I could change, was me. I had to own my past, own decisions, own my future. And through several months of um, individual counseling and marriage counseling, which I'm a huge proponent for counseling, um, we started to understand this that I needed to change, he needed to change. Change with us starts with me, starts with, with my heart, with this person. So change with us starts with me. I had to stop believing that other people, most of the time, was the source of all my problems, the source of all my wounds in life. I had to own my past, like I said, own mistakes, own decisions, because that would therefore allow me to own my future. And for some reason, it, it was, like you said, 10 years into the marriage, we had not realized how much the baggage of our history and our past experiences, how much of that that we brought into our relationship was weighing us down. It took that long to kind of realize we just kept blaming each other and blaming each other, like you said, and fighting each other when the reality was that we had to do the hard, hard work of digging deeper into our individual stories, owning it and learning from it, but then also letting it go was very hard for me. Letting it go to have the relationship that we've always wanted, um, not that we have, we're perfect now, but um, we, had to, we had to do that, the hard work of digging deeper into that. And um, we also realized that we didn't need to change the scenery, we didn't need someone else, another partner, we didn't need, um, we, you know, we needed to stop blaming each other, we just needed to start changing hearts. And um, if I can be, you know, very honest, which my family is always very worried about how honest I am, <laughs> and real I am, because I married my son's daughter. Um, it's been probably one of the hardest, most painful things of my life, owning um, that I play victim or I would blame everybody else. It's been it's it's been really hard, but very rewarding because the only person I can change is me, and the more I change, the more our relationship changed. That's right. The more she changed, the better our relationship. 
your journey, whether you ever marry someone or not. Do you hear that? Okay, because I know that a lot of us in this room are single. Doesn't matter if you're married or not. Changing me is going to be the hardest thing I ever do. And yet, once I decided to change rather than see myself as better than her, I started to realize how lucky I was to have someone like Allison in my life. How incredibly fortunate I was that she didn't walk away six years in, seven years in, eight years in. Because she could have. She would have every reason to just say, I'm done. Changing me has been the most difficult thing, but it's improved my relationship with Allison. It's also improved my relationship with everyone else around me, if you know what I mean. And just so you know, this is both an inside-out and an outside-in transform transformation process. Okay? We can't do it on our own, but God isn't going to do it for us while we sit on the couch and blame everyone else for our miserable life. God loves you too much to force you to love other people. While you do what only you can do, God will do what only God can do. You following? So, so the first lesson we learn is that we've got to love the person in front of us, not the one we wish for. The second one is that change with us begins with me. And now this last one that we kind of want to walk through, let me, let me set it up this way, okay? The primary reason, and this is loads of research, uh, back me up on this, and there's some of that research that's in your, uh, on your piece of paper there under additional resources. The primary reason that divorce happens is because of lack of preparation for marriage, incessant arguing, and the inability to have constructive conversations. Now, it might eventually wind up with an affair, or it might wind up with somebody drinking so much that they're no longer present. It might wind up like, you know, with some other reason, but if you back it up, you're going to find those three things present. And so I want to walk us through something that hopefully uh, can help all of us. And here's, here's how we're going to walk through it. Okay, let's so imagine we're married, but this could also be with your boss or friend or your parents. We see our spouse do something or not do something. Or we hear our spouse say something or never say something, right? You always or you never. We see that or we hear it. And then based on what we see and hear, we feel, and oftentimes what we feel is hurt, angry, betrayed, rejected, embarrassed. And so then, based on what we feel, we act. And I don't know how you act, but I'm the kind of person who lashes out. It's not very hard to tell when I'm upset. I yell, I scream, I cry, I point fingers. Others of us, our, our action may be withdrawal. We may mask the pain. We may pretend like everything's okay, and we suppress it, and we suppress it, and we suppress it. And then there's like one little thing that happens, like he doesn't put the toilet paper roll the right side up, and then we explode. And like everything from the last six months comes out, and we're like, whoa, I just, I, listen, I'm going to change the toilet paper. It's like, yeah, no. There's a lot more than that. And some of us start going to the friendlier co-worker that we have. 
death, who makes us feel respected and valued because our spouse makes us feel angry and hurt and betrayed. Are you following me? So we see and hear something, we feel, and then we act. Let me give you an embarrassing example. A while ago, I was running late to an appointment. And I was at home, and this appointment was across town, and I'm running late, and so I'm not going to be able to make dinner and get everything ready for this evening. And so I'm trying to communicate that to Allison, doing my job of, of, of you know, forewarning her about my, my lateness later. Because I'm laid down. And so I'm calling her, and I'm texting her, and yet I'm getting no response from her. Call her, text her, call her, text her. She's always saying her phone is broke. Always. Always. <laughs> but <laughs> she's not responding. Uh, so I'm running to the appointment. On my run to the appointment, lo and behold, I see Allison sitting at the park with one of our boys who was there playing. And I see her, and I'm like probably 50 feet away from her at this point, but I see her there, and she's got her hand on this man's leg. And this man was pretty big, so I thought, you know what, I'm not going to confront. <laughs> and I'm late already, so I'm going to call. So I call her, and here's what she does. I can see this 50 feet away. She goes, and then he goes right back. And in a millisecond, I felt like I wasn't good enough. I felt like she was deceptive and a liar and her marriage was a sham. This is why her phone's always broken. These are all the things I felt. But I didn't want to, to I texted her, but I didn't want to text her. I saw you with this guy, what's going on? Because uh, I didn't want to give it away. So I texted her an angry text about how she never responds to my emails and phone calls and texts. I'm sure your phone's broken, all this kind of stuff. I go to my meeting. And about an hour later, a little more than an hour later, I'm going to read this verbatim. She sends me this text. Sorry, I felt my phone vibrate, but the man I was talking to is Jack's grandfather from school. He's one of our boys' friends. He was literally in the middle of talking about being inside the trade towers on 9-11 and losing his friend. He's permanently disabled because of this, and he was crying because so much has changed. Sorry, but I felt rude answering the phone. Oops. <laughs> you see, something happens. Something happens. I left something out. Something happens between what we see and hear and what we feel, and that's that we tell ourselves a story. Right? And the story I told myself was I'm not good enough that she's a liar, that our marriage is a sham. All in, all in a split second, I told myself all those things, and that caused me to feel embarrassed, rejected, hurt, angry, and so I acted out. Several years ago, author Andy Stanley uh, gave some wonderful wisdom to us. <laughs> he said that right before we feel and right after we see and hear, we tell ourselves a story, and there's one of two ways the story can go. You can either believe the best, or you can assume the worst. You can believe the best, or you can assume the worst, and that will determine the trajectory of your relationship with your boss, with your friend, with your parents, with your spouse, with your children. 
forever. Until death do us part or until divorce do us part. And as I think back over that ridiculous, embarrassing story I just walked you through, like, had I seen that? That doesn't mean that I'm not going to ever ask her about why she had her hand on some other man's leg. That might be an appropriate question. But what if I believed the best about my spouse who stood before God, our friends and family, and said, in sickness and in health, for richer or poor, in good times and in bad, I promise to honor and cherish you. And for 20 years she had done that. Why would I ever think that I have any reason to worry about what my spouse is doing when I'm not around? But instead, I chose to assume the worst and tell a terrible story, not only about Allison, but about myself. You see, my question is, what story are we committed to telling about our spouse when we see and hear something they do or do not do, say or do not say? And what if, like the root of our problem, is that we always assume the worst? Rather, he made himself nothing, 
partaking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. 